welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. So good morning, my name is Joe, and together with my wife, she's in the kids' ministry this morning. We lead the team that leads Doxedo Hatfield. We're part of a family of churches. We actually just recently heard um, the way that we plant new campuses either is a from-scratch planting like Hatfield was. Sometimes we move people, we ask a whole bunch of our people to go from one campus to a new space where there's opportunity. Uh, some of the campuses in Pretoria got planted that way. Um, and sometimes churches ask to become part of the Doxedo family. And something like that has now happened in the north. So our 14th campus is actually going to be close to the Roodeplark dam, apparently. I literally just heard it as you guys are hearing it. Um, and this is exciting stuff because I think this is our 34th in campus internationally, and the heart has always been the same, bringing faith, love, and hope to the city because the gospel of Jesus changes everything, and that's our heart. And so my hope this morning is that you would experience something of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you, if you do not mind, Dr. Hatfield, to open up your Bibles with me, if you're a guest as well to the book of John, the final time in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you get to this book. We have worked through the whole thing. Can you imagine that? It's taken half a year, and we are about to finish up the book, The Good News According to John. And we've called this second half of this book, as we've worked through it, more life. And the reason for it is this is more than 40 times the word that comes up that Paul most or John likes to use when he speaks about the focus of what Jesus does. It's not about heaven one day. It's about God life today that echoes into eternity. What is God's life that he wants to give you? Not just your life and you get a second chance at it, your dreams, your desires, your passions. God says, no, my dreams, desires, passions for you. What is God quality life? And I want to take us back as we finish up today um, to the key passage, I think, for this whole book, John 20 verse 30. And John says the following, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. He did a whole bunch of other stuff. I couldn't write it all down. But these, these miracles, teachings, this life of his, these are written so that you, reading 2,000 years later still, these are written so that you may believe and that my believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, you may have life, Zoe life in his name. By putting your faith, your trust, your hope in who he is and what he's done. Not just kind of mechanically trying to follow him and say, yes, I'm gonna do this Jesus thing, I promise. But by believing in who he is, you might have life in his name. And where we're gonna end today is by just asking you a very simple question. Because I want to show you that John actually, all the big stuff's already happened. The, the death and resurrection of Jesus has appeared to his disciples. And then John decides to add this very personal note right at the end. And to set it up, there's a, there's a quote by a man named Thomas Merton. He's one of the greatest thinkers and theologians of our time. And many years ago, I heard this quote from him, and it stuck with me. It's bothered me. It's upended me. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's messed up the gears of my heart many times. But he says the following. He says, a saint, a Christian is not someone who is good, but someone who has experienced the goodness 
of God. How much Christianity globally and in the city is this morning, I'm going to try and be good. This Monday, I'm going to be good. This time, I'm going to be good. And Thomas Merton says, Christianity is not about trying to be good. It's not even about being good. It's the question, have you experienced the goodness of God? That's where it all changes. That's where Zoe life begins. It's not being good, experiencing the goodness of God. And here John says, listen, the resurrection's happened. All the fireworks have happened. But I want us to end on a very personal note. Because if this is simply John 3.16, for God so loved the world, but it hasn't come into your heart just yet. It hasn't touched your life, your marriage, your business, your finances, your thinking about the city and the purpose that God has given you. If it hasn't upended you yet. Yes, God can be good, and we sing about His goodness, but have you experienced the goodness of God? That's the focus in how John ends this whole thing. Let's read together. John 21, verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to His disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and the two others of His disciples, they were all together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. Well, we're coming with you, they told him. And so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Friends, he called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, the carpenter telling the fishermen, career fishermen, how to fish. And you'll find some. So they did. And they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one that Jesus loved, this is John, he said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him for he had taken it off and he plunged into the sea. Verse 9. And when they got onto land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Verse 12. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. Verse 15, it says, When they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, You know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, You know that I love you. Then shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep then, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. And then skip to the last verse. And there also are many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. And that's it. The gospel, the good news, according to John. And he ends and he says, you know what? There are so many other things. There are tons of stuff that happen in the life and the ministry of Jesus. I couldn't write all those things down. But this is where I want to leave you. These things I wrote. And so my question is, I says, why this? <laughs> this random story about fishing and fires and conversations with these guys. Why in this massive cosmic thing that started with in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And why end that with, and they 
you know, caught some fish and they had a breakfast. Why? <laughs> Here's the reason why. Because if this cosmic story does not become your story, then everything John had wanted to happen from this has been null and void. In fact, he says, it's only when I have truly experienced the most cliche word in the whole English language, grace. If I have not experienced the unmerited favor of God, none of this will mean anything. Because it's in grace that your life becomes upended. It's in grace that you don't see and think, I'm going to be a good person. But it's in grace that I say, I have experienced the goodness of God. Have you experienced the goodness of God through Jesus? I think three things happen. We read in this passage today that grace does. If you experience the goodness of God, first up, you are going to be reconciled to other people. You're going to be reconciled to yourself, who you truly are made to be in God. And you're going to be reconciled to the one who created you. In fact, those three, they have to be on top of one another. You can never be reconciled to others if you've not been truly reconciled to who you are. And you can never be truly reconciled to who you are unless you've been reconciled to God. So let's look at that first one. It says in this passage that grace, the unmerited favor of God, when you've encountered the goodness of God, it reconciles you to others. So read with me. It says in verse 4, when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore but the disciples did not know that it was him. It's too far away. So who are these disciples specifically that he's mentioning here? It says in verse 1 to 3, we didn't read at the beginning of the passage, it says it was Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the two sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples, the unnamed ones. Now, what do we learn from this? Just look at this list for a second, these names. And John is almost saying, just think back with me. You can even go and look at the other accounts of the life of Jesus from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he says, think about the men that I've just mentioned who are in a boat together. These are not like-minded people. These are not people who like doing CrossFit together, who are in a knitting club together. These are not people who are in the same socioeconomic bracket, who go to Hartenbos together. These are very, very different people. In fact, we often say fellowship, that very churchy word for, for communion between the saints. It's two fellows in a ship doing stuff together. This is literally what's happening. The fellows are in a ship together, and you cannot get more different fellows together here. And John is saying, think about that again, what's happened by the end of this journey, because let's take an example. Firstly, you have someone like Thomas. Thomas is hard-headed, and he is almost, he's so hard-pressed to believe, you can call him a cynic. When Jesus is raised from the dead, he appears to him, and what does Thomas say? He says, I will not believe that this is the risen Jesus until I can literally see the scars in his hands. I won't believe it. That's who Thomas is. Then you have the very opposite. You have Nathaniel in the boat right next to him. Nathaniel is like a gullible person, almost. He's, he's almost superstitious. That's how easily he believes. So we read at the beginning of John, when, when, when Jesus meets Nathaniel, he says to him, I saw you earlier under the fig tree there. Now, we don't know what he was doing there, thinking there. Was he contemplating playing Sudoku? I don't know what he was doing there. But Jesus says, I saw you there. I encountered you. And he is so taken in by this because something profound had happened. He's like, this is a miracle. This is supernatural. And he literally says to Jesus, you are the king of the Jews. Rabbi, I follow you. And Jesus is like, oh, like you believe very quickly. Like you're going to see much more incredible things than this. And these two, the hard-headed, cynical, and the gullible, almost easy believers sit right next to one another in the boat. 
Can we be honest that the Thomases and the Nathaniels of the world don't get along? The Nathaniels tell the Thomases, you guys are so cynical. Jesus could appear here and you would still not believe it. You guys have no faith. You are like the stagnant ones in the church. You want it to be stuffy and intellectual. And then the, the Thomases tell the Nathaniels, you guys are those weirdos. You want the gold dust to fall out of the sky. You're going to believe everything everyone tells you. You just have faith and you jump in. These people do not get along in normal life. And yet they sit two fellows in a ship. Some of you guys are married like that, a Nathaniel and a Thomas together. And even more so, here we have John. John is the rationalist. When he puts two and two together, it's like there it is, the first time he sees Jesus. And here again, he's the one who says, it's him. It's Jesus. And what does he do with that? Nothing. He's the deep thinker who's passive. How many of us are like that? And Peter, I see a hand back there, um, and then Peter is the guy who does not think and just acts. He acts and then thinks. He's like, John, what? Is it Jesus? And he literally jumps into the water. It's like, we are going to the shore, Peter. He's like, I don't have time for that. I'm going to swim literally to the shore. I'm sure they were like rowing past them like, dude, you could have literally just stayed in the boat, but it's fine. That's Peter. The passive and the impulsive, and they are sitting right next to one another in the boat. Guys, usually the Peters and the Johns don't get together for anything. They don't go on holiday together because you will start planning the moment the car has started going and you will literally just decide today we're going to like Russia or whatever. Like these people don't get along. And yet here they are in the same boat together. What is John saying to us? Not when you try and be a good person. If you come here this morning and you say, I'm going to be a good person, and I know all these other people are good people, guess what's going to happen within six months? You're going to hate these people. <laughs> you are going to be frustrated with these people. You are going to be offended with these people. You are going to be offended most probably with me more than anyone else. But then the people next to you, in your community group, in your friend circle, in the guys who serve with you, I do not like these Thomases. I do not like these Johns. They speak different. They sound different. They smell different. They come from different backgrounds. Their kids went to different schools. I don't like these people. CrossFit people, you can stick together. You know, people, the knitting club, you can stick together. People who go on holiday together, you guys can stick together. But what Jesus is saying, when CrossFit disappears, those people will disappear. When my drinking buddies, when the alcohol disappears, they will disappear as well. When, the holiday, when I don't have the socioeconomic ability anymore to go on holiday with those friends, I will disappear from their circle of friends. But he says, what I am going to do is I will bring people together who are nothing alike. Backgrounds, skin colors, languages, beliefs, and I will make them the fellows in a ship. Because there will be a unity there that is not built around something as awesome as CrossFit or holidays, but something so much deeper. If you have experienced the goodness of God, you will say, these people are now my people. Because we're all here for the same reason. Friends, why does AA, the, 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 the one who started AA, the guy, he, he had this issue in his heart. Will I make it a, a blatantly Christian organization or will I build it on just underlying Christian principles? And he went for the latter. And there's a reason why millions of people every year, you see millionaires and junkies share coffee together. Because in this place, we're on level ground. You don't come here and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, this is my back. You just say, here I am, I'm a drunkard, I'm, a, I'm an addict. I've been clean for 35 years, but this is who I am now even. Where did that come from? It comes from here. 
if you have experienced, not I will be good, but I've experienced the goodness of God, man. These people, you guys, even me, we can be together. But more than that, how does that happen? You're like, well, Joe, that sounds nice, but we don't have that kind of community in the church very often. I haven't always experienced that, the supernatural community that Jesus says, if you see the love of the church, the city will want to know God. And I'm like, yes, that sounds amazing, but they look at the church and they're like, I don't want to have God because these guys are fighting even more than we're fighting. I'd rather join politics in the church. At least seasonally they agree about things, but you guys are always disagreeing about things. So why do we not have that kind of community? It's for the second reason, because we have not been truly reconciled to who we actually are. We're still playing games. We're still coming here together with the masks on. So secondly, truly experiencing grace, the unmerited favor of God, being plunged into the goodness of God. If that happens, you will be reconciled with who you truly are in God. Not your life with some religion sprinkled over. What was God's intention for who you were made to be? Jesus changes all of that. Why do we have this, kind of, this, this community? If I can't be transparent with myself, how will I ever be transparent with you? If I can't be honest with who I am, how will I ever be honest with you? Jesus says, I come and change all of that. And here's our case study, Peter. The one who acts and then thinks. Let's see how his story ends. Peter has this famous betrayal of Jesus. We Spoke about it two weeks ago. And guess what? By the time of Jesus' crucifixion, all of his disciples, all of them have abandoned him in different ways. All of them. But, but Peter's betrayal is specifically egregious and tough to swallow. Why? Two reasons. Number one, Peter was in Jesus' inner circle. He ministered to the crowds. He had this kind of loose grouping of 72. He had the 12 disciples who followed him. But then he had the three. Peter James and John. Think about your closest, closest confidants. He was one of them, and he abandoned Jesus. And the second reason why it's so tough is because Peter was so disconnected from who he is. I need to pretend that I'm tough and accomplished and strong, that he continually throughout the gospel says, I will be the only one not to abandon Jesus. He was the only one who kept saying that. I mean, let's be honest, the disciples were not a bunch of A-team players. They were emotionally and spiritually fairly so-so. But at least they knew themselves well enough to never say something as stupid as Peter would. Because what is, we have like the moped Olympics happening right here. That's amazing. Sorry, distraction for a second there. Yes. In fact, Matthew 26, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, and he says, you will abandon me. And it's tough. They're all like, no, can't be. But they're saying that in their hearts. What does Peter do? He acts and then he thinks. What does he say? He says, no, 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 no. Me, abandon you, never. He says in verse 33, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. He says that. What is he saying? He's saying, Jesus, look at these guys, these other 11. I've spent some time with them. Let's be honest. I can imagine them falling away, but me, never. Me, never. In fact, what is he saying? 
He's saying, you know, they can come with their swords. They can come and arrest us. I will go to, the, I'll go to jail with you, Jesus. I'll go even into the mouth of death with you, Jesus. That's what he says. He says, I love you more than these, more than all of these guys. I love you. And then what happens so famously? <laughs> Three times it says, and this is so crucial, it says that as Jesus being tried in front of the authorities, he's in this courtyard with some of the servants and the soldiers just a couple of chapters ago, and he's standing around. It says this charcoal fire. He's standing there because it's really cold. And some of the people come to him and they're like, wait, you, like you're one of those, those people, the Jesus people. You walked with this Jesus guy. And three times, not once, once you could have been like, that was a weak moment. Like, you know, this weekend, I had a weak moment. This was not a weak moment. Three times back to back, he says, aren't you that guy with that guy? He's like, no, no, like uh, Jesus, like, how do you spell that? I don't, I don't know. I've never heard of this guy. Like he's some, like, it's not me. Three times around the charcoal fire, he says, I don't know this guy. Now, what does Jesus do? When you've failed so utterly, I know none of you guys have ever failed. You guys are like pristine. You're like the picture of true Christianity. But people like me, I have failed epically in life. Peter failed epically. So what happens? Listen to what Jesus does. This is heart surgery like you cannot believe. He says, when they got out onto land, they saw a what there with fish on it. A charcoal fire. <laughs> Why is Jesus making fire? He says, let me bring you right back to the setting of your failure. Around a charcoal fire, I stood and I abandoned him. And now, not because he's hungry necessarily. I'm sure Jesus doesn't mind a good like breakfast special. But he's like, let me, let me bring you back to the place of your failure. And then more than that, what does he do? He, do he doesn't just bring him back to the setting. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The very format of his failure, the setting, your own words, do you love me more than these? That's a rhetorical question at that point. Peter knows the answer. And now more than just the setting and the content, the format, more than that, Jesus asks him not once, he asks him three times. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Peter, you failed. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Peter, you have failed. Do you love me? Three times Peter said, I don't know this man. Three times Jesus says, I need to dig into the very heart of who you are. What is Jesus doing in this moment? He's saying, for the first time in your life, Peter... I'm bringing you to the place where emotionally and psychologically and spiritually, I want you to no longer lie to yourself. I want you to be honest with yourself about who you are. I want you to look at yourself in the mirror with no pretense. Just see the failure for exactly what it is. And you're like, yo, Jesus, that is rough. This dude has gone back to fishing. That's how much of a failure he feels like at this point. And you are twisting the knife. I think he is twisting the knife, but not as like a totsy trying to get your money from you. He's doing it as a surgeon. Yes, I'm going to go straight to where that cancer is. 
We can pretend here this morning in church, but Jesus says, no, when we come together, I want to go to the very core of where that sickness is. I'll bring you back to the very setting, the format, even the three failures I will meet with something more profound. And what does he say? In this moment where, where Peter's like, I'm, I'm broken right here. I failed. I know that. I failed. I know that. You failed. I know that. And so what does Jesus do in that? Does he just throw salt into the wounds? No, three times he speaks a deep affirmation into the heart of Peter. Three times he uses these words in the Greek. It actually refers to a pastor, a shepherd, a leader. What is he saying? He's saying, Peter, you failed. I know, God. Peter, you failed. I know. Peter, you failed. I know. Therefore, take up your calling and lead. You are a leader, a pastor, a shepherd. You have a greater calling. Don't go back to fishing. Don't go back. Go forward. You failed. I realize it for the first time. Now you're ready to stand up and walk. I've called you. I've called you. Now go. So what is Jesus saying to him? He's saying, Peter, plunge your failure into my grace. Plunge your failure so deep into my grace because when you do that, you will discover who I have truly made you to be. If you come and fix yourself at church, it will not make a difference. If you say that I'm a good person doing good things for good people at good times, you will struggle, you will hurt. But if you say, I will plunge the deepest of my failure into the grace of God, there will be birthed something in you that you've never known you can be. God, I'm a failure, I'm a wreck. You know why in Doxiday we often don't sing certain things? We say, you know, I love amazing grace, but there's a word in there that says, that saved a wretch like me. Wow, that's powerful. But that's not who you are in Jesus anymore. You are no longer a wretch. Yes, that's where I came from, but you are now the righteousness of God. You are a son and daughter of God. You're in a walking embassy of God. You are a living gospel for God. You are the anointed and adopted and loved of God. He says, when you truly in your life come to the place where you say, no more games, no more masks, no more religion, no more trying, no more restarts on a Monday, God, I will plunge the deepest of my failures directly into your grace. As Paul or as Peter dove into the waters of the sea, he says, if you dive, if you pour, if you throw your failure into my grace, there will be birthed a person you have never known that you can be. Lead, shepherd, pastor, I've called you. As a teacher, I've called you to pastor. As a mom, I've called you to pastor. As a businessman, I've called you to lead and to pastor. As a student, you are not just called simply to study. You are called as a leader and a pastor, plunge your failure into my grace then you will discover who you truly are. Friends, in our modern world, this is not what you get. <laughs> Let's be honest. If you mess up, it's done. I messed up my marriage. It's done for you in the eyes of people around you. I did not get into that course. I studied so hard. You are a failure. You can look at, you know, from the side. You can go and study some side thing here while all the accomplished people do the thing that you always wanted to do. I was not chosen for that position Everyone around me knows that. In our world, if you fail, man, you fail hard and people never give you a second chance. But Jesus says, in my economy, 
It's absolutely different. In fact, it's literally the opposite. There's a moment where Jesus, in one of the other accounts of his life, in Luke 7, he goes, he's invited to the house of a Pharisee, this hard-charging, type-A religious personality. I am a good person. And he invites them to eat there. And while they're eating, in the ancient Near East, feasting with someone is such a personal, deep thing, in barges this woman. And Luke 7 says she was a woman of the night. She was a prostitute. And she comes and she just breaks before Jesus. He pours out this, this, this alabaster jar. She washes his hair with his feet. It's this amazing moment. And this Pharisee is so offended. How dare this woman do this? How dare she come and offend us with her presence? This sinner, this broken person. And what does Jesus say to him? He, say, he says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. The one who is forgiven little, loves little. If I'm just a good person who needs a boost, man, following Jesus is a drag. He's asking me all this stuff. I'm doing the good stuff. I'm not even getting the good stuff back from him. But if I realize, man, the epic failure of whatever sort has been swallowed. Do you think the ocean took note of Peter diving in? It's like the ocean didn't even recognize his presence. Jesus is saying, as deep as that is, my grace is deeper. If you plunge the deepest of your failure into my grace, it doesn't even affect. It doesn't even note it. It's that deep. It's only when you realize you have been forgiven much and he loves you much. He adores you much. He accepts you so much that you begin to love much. That's the only place. Guys, I struggle with this. To become this kind of person who is a leader, who's a shepherd, who cares for others. Guys, I struggle with this. My, my caring EQ is so low. Many of you guys know this. One of my, my, one of my first proper leadership roles I was given in the church when I started working for the church was leading the youth ministry. And I'll never forget, I had such a frustration at a time with some of these youth guys. Because in my mind at that stage, I was so harsh. I just felt like, oh man, these issues that they come and moan to me about are so trivial. It's like, you know, the boyfriend and the girlfriend, he's not texting me back and this is happening and I've got this massive test on Monday. You know, I'm grade eight or whatever it is. And my parents don't listen to me. And, and I'm just like, oh my goodness. Are you serious with me? Like, I have just had my second child. I'm trying to do post-grade studies while I'm working full-time. I'm, like, burning it up at house and, like, all this stuff. And you complain about your girlfriend. That's how I felt because I had no compassion. I saw them in a certain way because I saw myself in a certain way. And then something happened that so upended my whole view of the season. There was a young guy. We had been walking a road for almost two years and then at one stage, he fell away. He, we, we, we couldn't find each other anymore. There was, a, there was a misunderstanding and we didn't see eye to eye. And then he came back to me a couple of months later just to say to me in my face, Joe, I'm so sorry that I ever took your advice. I feel so, I feel that I wasted a season of my life because I listened to you. And that's where it ended. That was the last thing we ever said to one another. And a month later, that young man died tragically in a motorcycle accident. And that's where my relationship with this man ended. 
And then I read a passage like this where Jesus says, man, if you understand my goodness, then you will become a shepherd of my sheep. You will become a leader, a servant, a lover, a carer, a gracious bringer of truth to my lambs. Because guess what, guys? If you feed a dog, the dog people here today, man, that's a joyous moment. That dog is so thankful that you fed him. Like the tail wagging and the drooling and the, it's like he's doing his little dances, he's eating. You love it. If you feed a cat, all the cat people, I'm speaking from very secondhand knowledge because I'm not a cat person, but if you feed a cat, it purrs, it, it moves up next to you. It's like you get so much back. Jesus saying, if you feed a lamb, you get nothing. You get nothing. The day that you understand what God's calling is upon your life, you will no longer look at the people sitting around you or the friends, colleagues, family members, and neighbors who do not yet know Jesus and think, what can I get out of this relationship? Will it stir me intellectually? Will it be good for me emotionally? Will it be good for my career? Will it be good for just, you know, I just want like-minded people in my life? I will start saying, because of who Jesus is, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep. If you're a business owner, I'm called to shepherd the people of my fold. If you're a teacher, if you're a mom or a dad, you have been called to live in such a way that represents the God that has called you to discover who you are so that you can discover what you've been called to. So how does that happen? How would I ever become <laughs> the kind of person who would work with teenagers and I, could, I can get nothing emotionally maybe from them in that season of my life? That's what I thought. How would, you, how would you become someone who in this church feels like I can't get anything from these people? How would you become someone who would reach out to a neighbor who you like this person and their lifestyle and their everything? It's, just, it's not me. How will I ever become the person who says, yes, I will feed the sheep. I will lead the lambs. I will, I will give myself to them. How will that ever happen? Only here, last point. If grace, that goodness that you don't strive for, but that you experience, if it reconciles you to God. This last thing that Jesus says is very weird. It's, it's, it's cryptic. We have to think about this for a second. So read with me. It says, verse 18, he's speaking to Peter. He says, truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. What a strange statement. Now, what is he saying to him? Two things. All the Greek scholars will tell you he is using dual language here. The first thing is, can you agree with me that you cannot hug someone if your arms, if you are like, if your posture is like this, you cannot hug and embrace someone. If you want to hug someone, if you want to embrace someone, if you want to be close to someone, you have to open yourself up. But opening yourself up is dangerous. You can be punched and stabbed. You can be kicked in the shin as you open yourself up to other people, right? Some of you have become so cynical in the workspace because every time I open myself up to someone, they stab me, not even in the front, in the back. He's saying if you want to open yourself up in that place of vulnerability, you will become the one who can influence those around you. You can serve those around you. You will have to take the chance of opening yourself up for those around you. But more than that, he's saying this other aspect of what the Greek is saying to us is this was an idiom. This was a metaphor for what? For crucifixion. 
to open yourself up, there is nothing more open than giving yourself literally for others. He's saying, Peter, here's what I want you to understand. Your life, when I've made you the way that you are meant to be, you will start living in such a way that you open yourself up for other people, to other people, in service of other people. But guess what? You will begin to do that in such a way that the pattern of your life will be patterned after my life. Your life will take on this crucified form. I'm pouring myself out for others. Why? Because Peter, the day that you see that I have opened myself up so wide for you is the day that your life will begin to take on the same shape. And in fact, church history tells us that's exactly what happened with Peter. He had many ups and downs. I'm not saying your life is going to go like this. It's going to be like the JSE, as we often say. If you zoom out far enough, I'm, I know that God will perfect what he started in you, but there will be many ups and downs. And Peter still has many ups and downs after this moment. But there is something when we zoom out in the life of Peter, we realize that he so gave himself to the church and the people, to the gospel, to the mission of what God wanted, to the family of, of God. He so gave himself in service that eventually he was crucified for the gospel. Church history tells us that when he was about to be crucified, he asked these torturers, these captors, can he be crucified upside down because he does not want to dishonor the name of Jesus and be crucified in the same posture as him. The man who could not even say, yes, I am with him, by the end of his life said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like him. How does that happen? Is it by being a good person? It only happens, Jesus is saying, the degree to which what I have done for you grips you, changes you, rearranges you, reestablishes you, transforms you day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, season in, season out, decade in, decade out. The degree to which this becomes the pattern of your life, you will become the very thing I've called you to be. It's the only way. And how do we know that in Peter's life? In Luke 5, do you know that this happened before? This whole fishing thing, did it sound to some of you like, didn't this happen again somewhere? Like this whole, and it's because it has. The moment that Jesus meets Peter, it says they're also catching fish. <laughs> and Peter is stressed out because he owes people money and it's this whole thing. And the whole evening, they don't catch anything. And then Jesus is on the shore. And again, the carpenter, tongue in cheek, is like, guys, you fishermen, you, you don't know what you guys are doing. Let me just help you here. Just put it in on that side. And they're like, dude, we have been flipping, trying this the whole evening. But okay. And then they finally do it and it literally almost sinks their boat. <laughs> That's how much fish they suddenly catch. And what does it say Peter does that first time? He finally gets out on the shore and he goes and he falls before Jesus and he says, get away from me, I'm a sinner, I'm unrighteous. Why? Because at that stage, Peter is still operating like you and I so often operate. I'm a strong person, I'm an accomplished person, I'm a smart person, I'm a, I'm a graceful person, I am an intellectual person, I am a servant-hearted person. And then when I'm trying to act, when I'm trying my best, then when the smart person finally meets someone who's 10 times as smart as they are, they crack emotionally. When the person who serves their children meets someone who does it even more selflessly, they crack. When the person who's hardworking and has their life together meets someone who is utterly committed to keeping their life together, you just break. 
Because I've been exposed. Peter meets someone who is greater than he is, and he's just exposed. But the last time that he sees Jesus, he no longer falls before him and says, I'm unworthy. He dives into the water to get to Jesus. Because he has realized, man, it's in this man that I find who I am. I can take off the masks. I can take off everything. It's in him. So we're going to finish off today. And I want to ask you just that question as John closes. Thomas Merton says, man, Christianity, a saint, is not someone who is good. But it's someone who has experienced the goodness of God. And I want to ask you today, if you say, man, this Christian thing is really brutal. It feels like I have to perform, I have to do, I have to go, I have to, I have to, I have to show up, I have to read, I have to pray, I have to chant, I have to give, I have to, I have to, I have to. Or if you say, I, I swear, like if these people just knew who I was, if these people today could just see something of my life today, they would chase me out of this church. If they knew my thoughts, if they knew my actions, if they knew my failures, and I'm saying to you, that is 100% correct. Because guess what? None of us here are here because we are good. I'm here this morning because I absolutely believe that I've experienced the goodness of God in Jesus. There's a famous atheist author from, I from Ireland, a lady who once said, just before she died, she had an interview on television. She said, the thing, you know, the thing with you Christians that I so desire is this forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. Friends, the reason we are here is not because we are good. It's because I have experienced the depth of the forgiveness of God. It's because I've experienced the depth of His goodness. And if the book of John doesn't enter into your life in that deep place, God, I failed, I know. God, I failed, I know. God, I failed, I know. So therefore in me, stand up, take up your calling. I have made you a shepherd. I have made you a leader. I have made you who you are made to be in me. This is the good news, according to John. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray this morning that we would just be taken in by your goodness once again. I pray that every person, God, who feels that they have to be strong would today just fall, God, into the ocean of your grace. God, I pray for the Christians specifically this morning, God, who so epically failed this week, God, who failed emotionally, failed relationally, failed financially, God, failed spiritually, that they would fall headlong into the grace of God today. God, teach us to fly to you, to run to you as Peter did. 